Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. Revelation chapter 5. Just a reminder, as we're going through the Revelation, please remember that chapters and verses were not a part of the Revelation. They were added for our convenience so that we can uh, turn to those scriptures and read together. But sometimes, if we're not careful, we let those chapter divisions uh, separate us from truth. And what I want you to understand is what he sees in chapter 4, whenever he saw the one sitting on the throne who's God, and he saw the throne. And then he saw the elders, the 24 elders with that throne. And then last week we talked about the cherubim, those four cherubim, those living beings, those angels who have uh, awesome responsibility throughout this book. All of those have been seen there in chapter 4. And we move right into chapter 5 without any division. They have praised God Almighty that he's worthy of all praise, glory, for he is the creator of all things and for our pleasure for his pleasure, we were and are created. Then we move to chapter 5. And I hope you'll hold on here because this is what some of the most exciting verses in all of the Revelation. Pay really close attention, if you would, about each one of these words and each one of these themes in chapter 5 because it sets the tone and lays the table out for us for the rest of the book. That's what it says. And I saw... In the right hand of him, that's God, the Father, who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book, to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all of the earth. And he came and he took it. He took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Wow. What did he see? He saw sitting there on the throne, almighty God. And in his hand, and the picture is in his open palm, God holds out a book. He holds out a book. It's an open palm so that anyone who's worthy can come and take it. He's making it accessible for anyone who is worthy to come and to have this book, to open that book, and to reveal what is inside. And oh, what a book this is. An amazing book 
that all the rest of the revelation is about this book. Well, first of all, let's talk about the word book. Most of you, whenever you were in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or something, y'all came to understand that whenever it talks about a book in the Bible, it's not really talking like a book that your Bible is, that you have in your hand, where it is a bound book. We have bound books. They're bound, and then you open them up, and there's writing on both sides of the page, and you go through that book. Well, that's not the kind of book that they had in the Bible times. In the Bible times, whenever you were in vacation Bible school, they probably helped you to make a scroll. Y'all remember making one of those scrolls? I remember making a scroll. Well, that's what a book in the Old Testament or the book in the biblical times would be. It would be a scroll. So I, I practiced in getting ready for vacation Bible school. I made one for you today so you'd be able to see it, all right? And this, when it says that that scroll or that book was in his hand, it would literally be that. It is this rolled up book that is like that. And it says that in this book that it has seven seals on it. Now, that doesn't mean in our picture we might see a book and we'd have seven seals across the front of the book, but that's not the way it is. With a scroll, it's talking about the seven seals. The outside has a seal, all right? That'd be one seal. And whenever that seal gets removed, then you're going to find out that it's going to open up. It's going to open up to a stopping point because there is another seal. And not until that seal is broken, then you take and break that seal and you go to the next section. And you have to break each one of the seals to be able to read the entirety of the book. So whenever you think about that, what basically God did whenever he wrote this down and wrote this out, He wrote from the very beginning, and he began to seal that book and seal that book and seal that book until there is that last seal, which is the first seal that has to be opened in order to open up the book. That's the picture. You need to get that in your mind. That's the picture of that scroll or that book in the hand of God. Now, what is this book, and what is the purpose of this book? Well, it goes back to Jewish times and Jewish traditions and Jewish law. I hope you remember in Jewish law that once an inheritance was given to a family or to a tribe, they could never, ever lose that inheritance. In other words, when the land was divided up for each of those tribes, that land in that promised land would always be theirs. There was no way for them to lose it. God had given to them, and it was an everlasting covenant and inheritance for them. But if you remember what happened sometimes, those people who had the land, they made wrong decisions, they suffered transgressions, they did some things that were wrong, and it would cost them to lose their land. They would lose their land. They'd have to give it up. Sometimes they'd end up in debtor's prison. Sometimes they'd end up as a bondservant of somebody else. But the land that they possessed was gone out of their possession. And you would think it'd be gone forever, but not in the Jewish law. For in Jewish law, every 50th year, the 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. You know what the year of Jubilee was? The year of Jubilee is when all the land that belonged to that family or that tribe was returned to that family. Every 50th year, that inheritance was given back to that family. It was always theirs. It's just somewhere in their transgressions and in their problems, in their mistakes, in their sins, in their wrong dealings. Somewhere in the midst, they lost that. 
Every 50th year, they'd have a chance to get back their inheritance. What God gives to you is yours. But here was the issue. In between those 50 years, whenever there was somebody who had committed transgressions or made a wrong decision or did something that was a problem and caused them to lose their land, that land was going to be lost to them until the year of Jubilee unless someone would come and redeem it. Right? Somebody could come and redeem it for them and buy it back, purchase it back, and, and they could have that land. If you remember in the story of Ruth, you remember reading the story of Ruth? That was what it was all about. Remember Naomi and Ruth? They came back to their homeland and they didn't have any money. And they had Boaz became their kinsman redeemer. He was their kinsman, and he went and redeemed their land so that they could have their land back before the year of Jubilee. Now, the way that you did that in their their time was this. When somebody had lost their land, when they had lost their inheritance, there were two scrolls, two books that were written. One book was written, and it was sealed. Inside of that book that was sealed were all the reasons and transgressions and problems that that family had encountered, that individual had gone through, the mistakes they had made that had caused them to lose their land, caused them to lose their inheritance. All of that was written on the inside, and that scroll was sealed. But there was a second scroll, and that second scroll or second book was left open. And what was on the inside of that was all the requirements and all the stipulations of what someone who desired to be a kinsman redeemer would have to do in order to win back the land, in order to get back the inheritance. It was left open because if there was somebody who was qualified, somebody who met the stipulations, qualifications, and who had the desire to redeem that land back for that family, they could do it. So it was easily read. Somebody could read it any time to whether or not they wanted to participate and be a kinsman redeemer. So two scrolls, one sealed with all the problems and transgressions, the other open to saying this is how it can be redeemed. Well, over a period of time, they stopped having the two scrolls. They decided to be a little more conservative. You know what they did? They took one scroll And on one scroll, they wrote on the inside of the scroll, they wrote all those transgressions, problems, sins, and had caused them to lose their land. But then on the outside of the scroll, they wrote what could be read even when it was sealed. They wrote what would be the qualifications, stipulations, and the payment for that redemption. For that redemption. So just one scroll, outside it tells... What must be done, who was qualified, and who could redeem it, and who could win back the land. The inside is all the transgressions and all the problems. Go back to to Revelation chapter 5. Now, let's see what it says. I saw in the right hand of him, God, who sat on the throne, a book written, what? Inside, and what? And on the back. Written on the inside was all the transgressions, all the problems, all the difficulties, all the things that had cost us to lose our inheritance, right? But written on the outside 
or the qualifications and every stipulation and whatever it would be necessary for somebody to come and to be the kinsman redeemer. It says that that book was sealed with seven seals. It's sealed with seven seals. Those seals are placed on by the one who holds it in his hand. Those are the seals of God. I remember that the seal was something that usually had wax. It was made of wax. It held something together, and they'd take and put the signet ring upon it. I don't know what the signet ring of God looks like, but that signet ring was on that seal, which meant this, that the only way that that seal could be opened is the fact that someone would meet God's qualifications, God's stipulations, that they would be able to open up the book. And if someone did not, there was no way that they could open the book because there's no one greater than God. And he has seven seals because the number seven is completeness. It's the completeness. And so when he has this inside and it's sealed from the inside, it is the completeness of all the transgressions and all the sin and all the failures and all the things that had cost us to lose our inheritance. For see, the world was our inheritance. And relationship with God was our inheritance. That's what he created us for. And every good thing was our inheritance. And all the blessings of God, that was our inheritance. But something cost us to lose that. So something there is a problem. And it has to be redeemed. There has to be something done. Somebody has to pay for it. Something has to, in order for it to be totally, absolutely, completely, there's that number seven, completely paid for, completely redeemed, so that we win back everything that God intended for us to have. That seven sealed scroll sitting in the hand of God with all of the transgressions on the inside and the qualifications on the outside, it's everything. This book... This book that we're going to be talking about throughout this entire revelation, remember? It's going to be a part of the entire This book is God's book of redemption. That's what it's all about. How does God redeem this world? How does God, and what is God's plan, whereby we and all of creation is redeemed? What is the plan of God? What is the work of God? What has to be done for it to be redeemed? That is on the inside of that book. And that's where the seals of the book have to be opened. And one by one as they're opened, it reveals what must be done to redeem this world. But wait a minute. Before we get to those seals, we got to remember this. On the outside of that book, the outside of that scroll, it's written what the requirements, what the qualifications, what the stipulations, what the cost is for somebody to be able to open it. It's written there on the outside of the book. So look what happens in verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Listen. Here it is. Who is worthy to open the book? Who is worthy 
to break the seals of the book. Who is qualified to be able to come and take it out of the hand of God to break all of those seals and to reveal the redemptive plan of God? That's an angel. You get that picture? I love the way it says a strong angel with a strong voice. He says, who is worthy? Let me show you how strong a voice this angel has. Look what it says in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. This angel's voice reaches the realm of all creation. The angel's voice reaches the very throne room of heaven and all the heavenly beings. And the angel says in the heavenlies, who is worthy? Who's worthy? Who meets the requirement? Who can have the qualifications? Who meets the stipulations? Who is worthy? And there was none in heaven. No one in heaven stood or spoke forth. He spoke to the earth, all on the earth who could hear. All of creation hears, and they hear that same cry. Who is worthy to take the book and to open the seals? And no one on earth is worthy. Then it says that he says under the earth are the uh, nether world or what you'd call the spiritual world. It would be the world where the people who have lived and existed before but who are no longer alive but they're in the spiritual world. That would be both righteous and unrighteous. That's, he cries out in that place and says, of all those who have ever lived, of all those who've been on this world, all of creation, who is worthy? Who can break the seal?" In other words, the angel is crying to everything that has the ability to hear. And he cries forth and says, who can come? Who is worthy? Who can open the book? Who can open the book? Verse 3, and no one, no one. The Greek, the way it puts it is, not even one. Not even one came forth who said, I can open the book. No one came forth. No one met the stipulations. No one met the qualifications. No one could meet the needs and redeem the world. And no one could break the first seal, much less the seventh seal. No one came forth. Look what happens. And John says in verse 4, And I began to weep greatly. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and to look into it. That word that is used there in the Greek language where it says, John says, he wept greatly. It's only used one other time. 
It's used when it says that Jesus went and he wept over Jerusalem. It means to weep bitterly. It means to weep with great passion. It means to have a, a, a pain within you that is expressed and not even adequately expressed by the tears that are being shed. John is weeping because no one can open the book. You might say, well, why, why is John weeping so? Why is John weeping? Two reasons. One is John's weeping is a picture and a culmination of all the tears that have ever been shed throughout all of creation because of the lostness of this world and the sin that came into this world. From Adam and Eve who shed the first tear over the open grave of their son Abel once Cain had murdered him, the tears that they shed to the tears that were shed yesterday by somebody standing over an open grave having to say goodbye to someone they love because sin entered into the world. All of those tears throughout all of those ages is pictured in John weeping because that's what sin did. Sin causes us to weep. Not only in death, but in pain, in hurt, in agony, in frustration, in aimlessness. All the pain that God never intended for us to experience, but we have experienced because of sin. That's why John wept. All that pain. But there's a second reason he wept. Because, see, John knows this, that if someone does not and cannot open up that book, if someone cannot break the seal, do you know what that means for creation? Do you know what that means for the human race? It means this, that we will forever and ever and ever be destined to live under the power of sin and under the rulership of Satan. That's all we have to look forward to is not better but worse. If someone does not and cannot open up that book whereby this world can be redeemed and won back and the inheritance given back to God's people and the enemy be taken care of, that is what we are destined for. And John weeps and says, certainly there's got to be more than that. Certainly that cannot be the end. That cannot be all we have in this world. There has to be someone, certainly there has to be someone who can open up that book. Look what happens in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Stop weeping, behold. You You ought to circle those three words. Stop weeping, behold. Notice who it was that said that. That wasn't the angel who said that. Who was it that said it? It was one of the who? One of the elders. Who are the elders? The redeemed. The redeemed of God. 
whether Old Testament or New Testament, whatever dispensation, it's one of those who's been redeemed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's one of those who's sitting on one of the 24 thrones, one of those who's worshiping before Almighty God. And the elder, he is qualified to say, John, stop weeping. You know why? Because he has been redeemed. An angel cannot announce about the redemption because he's never tasted it. He's never experienced it. But that elder says, Stop weeping. Behold. Behold. Did you know that that's been the message of the church throughout its history? Do you know that's the message of the gospel? That's what we're to tell the world. Listen, you don't have to weep. Weeping is not the end. That is not your destiny. Stop weeping and behold. Behold who? The Lamb of God. (laughs) Behold who? Jesus Christ. Just like John the Baptist, whenever Jesus walked up and John was baptizing and, and he stopped and said, Behold the Lamb of God who what? Who takes away the sin of the world. John pronounced that whenever he saw Jesus And what John is talking about right here, this John, he's talking about that being fulfilled. Not just taking sin out of our life. He's talking about redeeming the world. He's talking about removing sin from this world. He's talking about taking the enemy and putting him in captivity. He's talking about the ultimate redemption of God. And our message is you don't have to weep. You can behold There's hope. There's something for you. There's something better. What that elder says, stop weeping. Behold, behold who? The lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Go to the end of Genesis. Whenever the prophecies are made about the 12 tribes and find what it says about Judah, that Judah was going to be the lion. And that from him would become a ruler. That all others would bow before him. Pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ was going to be that lion of the tribe of Judah. Later in the revelation, it's going to call him Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. With all of his majesty and glory and power. But he says this, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The root of David. What does it mean, the root of David? Well, it's kind of what Jesus asked whenever he walked there. Remember when he asked Jesus, Jesus said, why did David call me Lord? You remember he said in his prayer, David called the coming Messiah Lord. And he was trying to help them to understand that he was before David. And that David, whenever he walked here, he worshipped him as Lord before Jesus ever came incarnate into this world. And he also says, not only am I the root of David, I'm the beginning of David. But he calls out and says that what was David? He could have said he was the root of Abraham, couldn't he? He could have said he was the root of Elijah. He could have said he was the root of anybody because he's the beginning of all. Why did he say I'm the root of David? Because David was the king. He was the king. And the kingship and the rulership and the sovereignty. And he says, I am the ultimate king. I am the ultimate ruler. I am the root of David. 
He says this, listen. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He is qualified. The lion of the tribe of Judah is qualified. The root of David is qualified. Why? What it says in verse 6. When John, they announced the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming, John turns and he looks. Notice what it says. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, those were angels, remember, and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. Very important. Notice what he says. He says, I saw the throne and I saw the four living creatures. But between the throne and the four living creatures, between them and the elders, I saw a lamb Hey, listen, the lamb didn't have to go between God and the four cherubim. They weren't lost. They didn't need a redeemer, right? But he came before and between who? The elders. Because all of us needed a redeemer. All of us needed a lamb. It says what? Between those, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. A lamb slain. It's interesting the, what, the word he uses for lamb here. The typical word for lamb is the word amnos. just means lamb. But the word he uses here is the word arnios. Arnios is only used in, in, in two places. In two places. And what it, what it means is this. It, it means that, that it's a lamb that's a baby lamb like a pet. He, he used it when he talked to John in John 21, Peter in John 21. He says, do you love me, Peter? After he recommissioned him, care for my arnios, my pet lambs. And he uses it here in the Revelation when it says that Jesus is not just a lamb. He is a pet lamb, a baby pet lamb. Now, why is that important? Because do you remember what the rule of Passover was? You remember what they were supposed to do at Passover? They were to take and to get an unblemished lamb. And take that lamb, and that lamb is going to be sacrificed. He's going to be sacrificed. But before he was sacrificed, you know what the family had to do? They took that lamb, and for four days, that lamb lived in their house. For four days, that lamb was the pet of their children. For four days, they laughed and watched and played with that lamb, just like you do your dog, just like you do your cat, just like you do that pet. And in that short period of time, their hearts grew to love that little lamb. But on the fourth day, that little lamb was taken out of the family, carried out, his throat was cut, his blood was shed on the altar, his blood was put on the doorpost and the lintel because it was through his shed blood that they were passed over. It was through their, his shed blood that they were redeemed. It was through him that they had life. And so when it says the lamb... The pet lamb, the arnios. There's no question in our mind, that's the Passover lamb. 
And the Passover lamb was a picture of the perfect lamb of God who was going to come, who's Jesus. And Jesus is that perfect lamb of God. And he's not just the perfect lamb of God who could be loved and caressed and cared for, but he was slain. It means to be brutally slain. Brutally slain and for his blood to pay the price. To pay the price for sin. But he's not dead. It says what? He is a lamb that is standing as if slain. Has seven horns. That means horns are a picture of power. He has seven eyes, which is the picture of all-knowing and omnipresence, which is the Spirit of God, the fullness of the Godhead. It says, he came, verse 7, verse important, very important verse. He came and he took that book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That is so important. The rest of the book. It's about him taking that book out of God's hand. For he's qualified. Do you know what some of those qualifications were on the outside of that scroll? One is he had to be a man. He had to be a kinsman. See, the redeemer of mankind couldn't just be God. He had to be a man. A second thing that had to happen to him is he had to be holy enough that he could hold the hand of God. Job said that in Job 9. Read it when you get home. Job asked this question. How can sinful man be right with a holy God? How can we be right with a holy God? At the end of that same chapter, he answers, says, For there is no mediator or umpire who can hold God's hand and hold our hand to bring us together. We need a mediator who brings us together. And who is that mediator? Paul told Timothy, didn't he? There is one mediator between us and God. The who? The man, Christ Jesus. See, Jesus was the God-man. He could hold the hand of God and be in perfect position, and he could hold the hand of man and be in perfect position, and he also, it says, in order to pay the price, the price has to be paid through blood. And that means that he has to die. And who is there that ever lived who could hold the hand of God and the hand of man and die and pay the price? The debt of sin is death. Who could do that? Just one. Just one. But praise God for him. Amen? Stop weeping. Behold the Lamb of God who takes that book out of the hand of the Father. And he's going to begin to open up the book to redeem his world. To redeem his world completely, absolutely, to restore it to what God intended it to be. Behold the Lamb of God. Do you know him? If you don't, you need to give your heart to him. If you do know him, you ought to rejoice. Amen. You ought to rejoice over the Lamb of God. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. 
Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.